You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Before we get started, we wanted to just mention something really important we're doing this fall. We would like to keep this podcast ad-free, and we want to make sure that we can get transcripts to people season four, and we're actually going to try to back catalog all of our episodes with transcripts yeah. over the oh. next little while. Like over 100. So if you would like to help us, we're not. this isn't an NPR drive. We're not going to come on every three minutes and For talk an about it. Yeah. But we will say here at the front, we could really use your support. We're trying to get 1611 patrons um, over the next few months here. And so you can just go to patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people. Even a dollar a month will help. And there's a lot of other tiers as well where you can get involved more in the community. But even for just a dollar a month, you can help us in this campaign to get to 1,611 patrons. I think we're at about 1,380 right now. I think a little higher, but we're we're moving. We're moving, but we need to move quickly. Yeah, so if you can do that, please do. Yeah, 1611, because that's the year the King James Bible came out. Right, and we can't be the Bible for normal people without giving some respect to the original Bible that Jesus and Paul used. Right, what other date could we possibly use yeah, right, the so. old and plus that's reachable <laughs> right yeah exactly <laughs> we're not idiots yeah. around here you know we're marketing wizards but anyway <laughs> okay so listen our our topic today is faith politics and polarization and our guest is Pete Weiner and Pete is a just a wonderful sensitive nuanced thinker about politics and faith. And he's at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's a political commentator, and he writes for the New York Times and the Atlantic. And we just had a great conversation with him about sort of the his inside impressions and conclusions maybe that he's drawn about the nature of some of this polarization and why it's there and maybe what can be done to like stop it. <laughs> well, and I appreciate that the conversation was at a higher level because at some point you ask about, you know, being moderate. And I really appreciate that he said, you know, it's not really about being moderate in your convictions and in your belief. It's about being able to navigate the world of relationships and conversations in a moderate way and not letting yeah. our emotions get the best of us. Not just landing in, the, in, a, in a sort of mushy middle or something. But And, and I hear that, Jared, a lot. And the word in, in, in at least in my field is like you have to be more balanced, which means your view is too extreme. You have to sort of come back to something when maybe balance could be better understood as don't just calm yourself down a little bit. You can talk about what you think and it's okay. And and to fix it doesn't mean coming back into the middle or something. Right, right. Yeah. Good. Well, let's have this conversation with people. Let's do that. I don't know that there's been any group that is more susceptible to the temptations of power than evangelical Christians. One said that he noticed among evangelical Christians that there's an intellectual inferiority complex and a spiritual superiority complex. I think we really have to learn, and I'm talking to myself as as well as to other people, we have to learn to listen well to one another and really to enter into where other people are coming from. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and She said, can I try some? And so I I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work. 
and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Well, Pete Weiner, thanks for being a, a guest on our podcast today. Thanks for having me on. I'm a big admirer of your work and the podcast, so it's it's a lot of fun to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, same here. I'm, and your work on uh, political commentating and things like that, I think it's fantastic. So it's just it's a thrill to have a real celebrity here. We usually we just have normal people or boring scholars, but now we have somebody who's just on top of the world. I'm glad here. you just alienated all the other guests we've ever had. I did. I I'm sorry. I'm sorry, other guests. I didn't mean that. I'm just making our... I bet you say that to all the guests. Yeah, I guess I do. <laughs> oh, gosh. Anyway. Well, Pete, why don't we just begin by, you know, introduce yourself to our listeners. You know, what do you do? Why do you do it? And a little bit about your Christian background, too. Sure. I am a senior fellow at Think Tank in Washington, D.C., a public policy research group called the Ethics and Public Policy Center, where I've been for almost a, uh, a little bit over a decade now. And my life really has been in politics my entire adult life. I went to University of Washington uh, in Seattle, political science, did an internship when I was a junior in the Washington State Senate. When I was a senior, came out to D.C. on an internship at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And that summer of my senior year, or after my senior year, I got a job, and I basically stayed out here the wow. whole time. I started in the think tank world. Actually, uh, one of my early jobs, and this was in the uh, in the 1980s, was with the Ethics and Public Policy Center. My first, you know, one of the first big career breaks is I became a um, speechwriter for William Bennett, who was then Secretary of Education uh, under Ronald Reagan. Um, so um, I did that, and then uh, Bill became the so-called drug czar under George H.W. Bush. So I was with him then, and then in the 1990s, I was policy director for a group called Empower America, which was uh, the Republican Party and the conservative movement of the good old days. It was Jack Kemp uh, and, uh, and Gene Kirkpatrick and, and, uh, and Bill. And then I became uh, deputy uh, speechwriter for President Bush. I did that for a couple of years, and then I became director of something called the Office of Strategic Initiatives, which is a kind of in-house White House um, think tank. And then I left in, in 2007. I've been in the world of politics and, and ideas and, and, and writing, as I said, for my entire life. And right now, I'm primarily a writer and a political commentator. I write for the New York Times, uh, and I write for the Atlantic Monthly. I do it for, I guess, a variety of reasons. I, I, I think it's probably one of the few things that I felt like I could do uh, reasonably <laughs> well. It, uh, it, was a, it was one of those situations where my interests and I think my skill sets aligned reasonably well. But I must say that really, uh, as far back as junior high and, and high school, um, I had a sense that politics was important um, and that politics mattered. And I still believe that. It's, it's, politics is about a lot of things. There's, there are obviously some dark sides and some undersides of politics. But I b believe that fundamentally and finally, politics is about justice, and justice always matters. Hmm. And that um, politics uh, can at various times in the life of of a of a nation can nudge things either marginally and sometimes dramatically toward human flourishing. Yeah, and um, last thing I'll say on this is, uh, you know, I grew up as somebody who cared more about ideas than I did the parties themselves. So I identified more as a conservative than I did as a Republican. 
Um, I've been a pretty vocal Trump critic, even though I've worked in the previous three Republican administrations and in the Bush White House for, for seven years. But I, uh, for a whole variety of reasons, I, I was was very alarmed by by uh, by Donald Trump. So I'm alienated to the Republican part with the Republican Party uh, these these days. But as I said, I didn't feel like it was that was my home as much as I felt like conservatism in the realm of ideas mattered uh, mattered more. Yeah. So and tell us a little bit about your your faith background as well. Yeah, I, I didn't really grow up in a Christian household. Um, my parents I think were. Well, my dad was an agnostic. My mom was a believer. I don't have a memory, really, of, as a child of going to to uh, to church. Right at the end of high school, I began a, a pilgrimage of faith. It was very much um, an intellectual journey. Uh, I didn't have any sense. I was certainly not cognizant of of, uh, of a sense that there was something lacking in my life. I didn't feel like I was going through a crisis at the time. I just began to ask these questions. It was actually my best friend, a guy, a fellow named Brad Shannon, and I began this journey. My sister, who's five years older than I am, had gone to University of Washington, and she had become a Christian. She came back that summer. And I remember writing all of these questions on my dad's notepad, work notepad, um, about theology and about Christianity and how it made sense. And so that really began my my pilgrimage. Um, faith was not easy for me then, and to some extent, it's never really been that that easy. I think that's partly how I'm hardwired. Well, our listeners are nodding their heads right now too, because that's yeah, I mean, a lot of our right, listeners right. are in exactly that same place. So. Yeah, and I know from from your work with the podcast and your books, you 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 speak to them, and and uh, and frankly, have spoken to 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 me with your work, and it's been and it's been helpful. I remember telling Patty. As I was doing this journey, I said, um, "Faith is like sand in the gears for me. It just did. It didn't actually make things much more comfortable." But it was a couple of years after I had begun that pilgrimage. It was actually the time when I was out in in, in Washington D.C. that I really did focus in on on the cross. That is the reality of the crucifixion and the resurrection. I, I actually, as a, as a side note, I'll tell you, I was at University of Washington. It was English 172, I think was my class. And a paper that I did was on the case for and against the resurrection. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Which is, which is a reach for English 172. <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, if you can pull it off, uh, I guess more power to you. I checked it out with a professor who was... I think Jewish and atheist, uh, so I was not as if I was exactly uh, writing to the choir. But he liked the paper. But that really was kind of part of my journey, which was: is this true or not? I, I remember thinking early on, I don't want to believe because it makes me feel better, because it makes me a better person. I want to believe if it's true, and if it's true, then it should command my allegiance. And if it's not true, I really don't want to have that much to do with it. But when I was in D.C., for reasons that I'm, it's not exactly clear to me, I began to really focus in on the cross and sort of the beauty of the cross and the agony of the cross. And somehow it settled in my heart. I guess the short version is that I came to the view that what happened there reflected the character of God for us for all time. Hmm. So that didn't answer the specific theological questions I had, but what it did is it insulated me from from those questions becoming referendums on God's character. Um, so my faith, in a sense, settled down. It was a little bit easier at that um, at that point. And you know, since then, I, I've been in a lot of different churches. I don't have a 
devotion, a deep devotion to any particular denomination, I think partly because of my history. And that cheering that you hear is our listeners right now, just so happy. <laughs> yeah, and, and Pete, can I just jump in real quick and say... Please. So it sounds like the the there was a lot of things that could portray God in different ways and different characteristics, even throughout the Bible. But for you, it seemed like the cross became that primary way of seeing the character of God that anchored and was the filter through which anything else that you could say about God had to go through. Would that be a fair way of saying that? Yeah, no, that's, that's actually, that's an elegant way of saying it. It, it did become, it did become the, uh, the anchor. And at times, even today, when I, you know, when I struggle with, with questions and um, some of them I think are probably, you know, more abstract questions. Some of them are, are, are parts of the Bible, which you've, you've written about uh, as quite well. As I said, they don't they don't really become a referendum on God's uh, on God's God's character. But they're still there, right? There's you still. But oh, there's absolutely right. I will tell yeah. you, I'm you know, uh, friends of mine, pastors of uh, that I've known, theologians, still get questions from me. Some of them are theological. Some of them are the intersection of faith on particular issues. Right. Um, and I, it's just been part of me and it's not good or bad. It's just been part of my journey. And to tell you the truth, Pete, I'm trying to be a little bit careful with the people that I raise questions with, because the one thing I never wanted to do is I want, I didn't want to inject doubt for people who aren't struggling. So I, I, I try and be a little bit selective in the people that I speak to. Sure. Um, but I, they have to get there. They have to get to that place on their own. Exactly. And then the conversation can happen. Right. And for a lot of people, right. as, as you know, faith comes very, very easily. And that's, that's terrific. They just don't have any of those kinds of, of questions. But, you know, I've, I've always striven. I know imperfectly so because we're, uh, but intellectual honesty is, is a big deal to me. Mm-hmm. I, tr- I try and pursue it. And, and when I see people of the Christian faith, and this is true in politics as well, tie themselves up in, I think, knots to try and to try and justify something they right. want to believe, and they seem to set aside honest intellectual inquiry, honest theological inquiry, that's something that I think is is problematic. So I'm I'm, I'm often testing these propositions. Right. Yeah. And I, I you know, I, I like, and I know a lot of people will resonate with how. If I can put it this way, the paradox of the cross frames your intellectual search. Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. <laughs> I think that's a very. I mean, I'm not just saying this. I think that's a very. That's where I am. You know, I, that's. I think it's a sober place to be, and it's a freeing place to be, where you can still have those questions, but there's something about that paradox that just sort of. Yeah, you just sit in that for a while. Right. So, how does that intersect with? kind of tying in the, the practicality of politics. How, how I grew up in a tradition where faith and politics looked one particular way. Yeah. Um, how, how have, in your career, how has that maybe evolved or stayed the same, or how do you see it now? Yeah, it hasn't evolved too much. I have, I've had two ideas uh, between on faith and politics that I've tried to navigate throughout my life, and I had them very, very early on. And that is the notion that faith should inform politics for the reason I, I mentioned earlier, because I think politics has to do with justice uh, and human flourishing and human dignity. It's not the only realm in which that happens, but it's one of the realms. And I think that throughout the history of the country and, and throughout the history of the world, some of the most important social advancements um, have happened because faith has informed how people have, have acted in our own history. The abolition movement and the, and the civil rights movement are two obvious examples 
but there are, there are certainly a lot of others. On the other hand, I've always been very, very wary of how easy it is for faith to get corrupted by politics and for people to subordinate faith t- to politics and that politics becomes a prism through which people view faith as opposed to faith being the way uh, or a biblical ethic ought to shape our politics. The first piece that I think I ever had published anywhere was in our in my hometown newspaper, the Tri-City Herald. I grew up in, in a city called Richland, which is on the east side of the state, Washington State. It's a conservative part of the state as opposed to, to Seattle on the west side. And there was a, a fellow who, this was uh, right after Reagan had been elected, and he, and he wrote a piece in the Tri-City Herald talking about how Christianity aligned completely perfectly with, as I recall at that time, opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment, defense spending, uh, the Second Amendment, and a whole series of, of conservative issues. And I wrote a, a letter to the editor uh, and this was pretty young, pretty early in my Christian journey. And I remember the guy's name. It was The last name was Mays. And I said, at the end of it, I said, you know, Mr. Mays, Jesus Christ lived and died for all people, conservatives, independents, and conceivably a few liberals. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, so I've always been worried about that. And I, and I must tell both of you that in, in my life in politics and, and, and in the faith community, I don't know that there's been any group that is more susceptible to the temptations of power than particularly evangelical Christians. Okay. Well, that gets a inter- – this is – okay. Why? Because, I mean, I mean, you know, we want to get to issues of – everybody's talking about the polarization of politics and the co-opting of the faith in that polemic thing that's been happening. And, and right. you know, today, obviously, it's it's reached a fever pitch, but that's been a part of, I think, the American political experience, probably since the beginning, in some sense. I mean, there's always been sort of this fight between, is God on your side or not? Right. And, uh, but not like, not the way it is today, perhaps. But, you know, why, um, so explain that. Why is evangelical Christianity, in your opinion, susceptible to say being co-opted by political agendas? Yeah, it's a complicated question. I I think there are a whole series of factors that are playing into it. One is um, a very good friend of mine, close friend uh, David Brooks, who's a columnist for the New York Times, once said that he noticed among evangelical Christians that there's an intellectual inferiority complex and a spiritual superiority complex. Wow. And that intellectual inferiority complex, I've noticed as well, for all of the, you know, the words that you hear within Christianity about, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. This is not our home. We are pilgrims and sojourners. This is an alien land for us. For all of that, which I actually think is true in some deep sense, I think for a lot of evangelicals, they thirst and long for recognition in the world, for, for power, for recognition, uh, for, for recognition within the academy from recognition within the elite culture and the elite media. And I actually think because in many cases they didn't get that, that created a lot of resentments and grievances that have been harmful, have harmfully manifest themselves in, in, in our current political moment. Chuck Colson, who was, a, before his conversion, he was a pretty brutal hatchet man for Richard Nixon. It was said to Colson that he would, you know, walk over his, his grandmother if he had to for, for, for Nixon. Mm-hmm. But he said after his conversion that the easiest group to co-opt in the Nixon White House were the evangelicals. Um, but basically, if you gave them a, you know, a picture with a the president, they were, they were won over. 
so it's it's an odd paradox that, that happens. I also think that this gets complicated because I think a lot of Christians believe with some justification that, that, that you know, power matters. If you utilize it in the right way, you can advance the common good and the moral good. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a kind of Christian, sometimes a Christian delusion, and, um, and it's an idea of deep ambition, which is cloaked in Christianity, and, it, and there's deception and self-deception, and people don't really want to admit that. And all of a sudden, you wrap up these ambitions, these political ambitions, ambitions of power, and you, th- and you think, I'm doing this to advance God's work in God's kingdom. And that creates a kind of pride, a kind of self-righteousness, and a kind of aggression. It's, it's a belief that if we fail, God's kingdom fails. And the other yes. thing that it creates, which I think is very dangerous, and this really is, frankly, the, 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 you know, the concern I think that the founders had really through John, John Locke, who, who was probably the most important philosopher in terms of the founders— of course, you know, he had come through several centuries. They had, Europe had just uh, gone through several centuries of religious wars. And people like Locke and, and the founders, I think, were worried and understandably worried that politics is passionate enough on its own. And if you injected religion and faith I- into it, <laughs> oh, gosh. Never thought of that before. Then it becomes really children of light, children of darkness. Then it, then it becomes a struggle of. It's it, it's God uh, on my side, you know, Satan on yours. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction (laughs) level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. 
And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. So it's a complicated set of reasons. It's certainly not true of all evangelicals. And it's, as you know, it's a, it's a huge movement. It's probably 15% of the, of the country at this, at this point. A lot of people are on a continuum. But, yeah. but I do think that there are, um, there, there, there are dangers and that there is a susceptibility to the seduction of power, which, um, which I think is, hurts not only politics, but, but hurts faith. And that concerns me even more. Yeah. That, it reminds me a little bit of, uh, you know, Friedrich Nietzsche had this idea of resentment, right? Which is, you know, we're against power until we have it. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. This is, yeah. you know. and, and, you know, this, and I mean this sincerely, and it's not about piling on evangelicals. It's about trying to understand a phenomenon that evangelicalism as broad as it is, there's a segment of evangelicalism that is clearly doing something politically in, right. in the country. And you mentioned intellectual inferiority. I understand that from having the background, but you know, I know many friends of mine in academia who comment on the same thing from that point of view, that there's, there's a, a, a desire for recognition that we're just as good as those other guys, right? And and uh, by golly, we're going to show it, and we do scholarship better than the other guys. That's a bit of a caricature, but I could give you chapter and verse where I've heard that. And there is something there about an inferiority. I don't know where that comes from, other than maybe perceived naivete in theological views, like taking the Bible very literally in some cases where most people don't, like whether there's an atom or not, for example. Right. And I think that might put people on the defensive, and that's where evangelicalism and fundamentalism have – they share a lot of the same problems, which I think the, the media doesn't understand the distinction between those two movements, and everything's sort of lumped into evangelicalism. I don't think Jerry Falwell Jr. is an evangelical. Right. He's a fundamentalist. He's yes. a literalist fundamentalist, and that's a very different kind of animal than, you know, somebody else who's more warmly evangelical and is maybe not – doesn't have some of the same, um, let's say, blind spots about things. Yeah. No, I think that's right, and I, it's probably in part, you know, the, the, the fundamentalist modernist controversy, the Scopes Monkey t- trial, and f- yeah. f- for, for these many, many years, decades, this perceived conflict between science and faith – and and there's so there's probably that that history has has played into it, but it's it's left the residual effects of it have um, have, have have been harmful. And having said that, there's a lot of good that evangelicals have done, and and it is also true in my experience that evangelicals are involved in politics, many of them for largely selfless reasons. If you took, so for example, the pro-life movement, um, that is some, that if you talk to people who are pro-life, you know, they're, they're not in it for themselves. It's not for their, you know, uh, like labor unions or, 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 you know, education unions and so forth. They really feel this deep sympathy and empathy and concern for, for, for the unborn, and they're willing to sacrifice for it. And there's something admirable in in that, so like in most of life, it's a it's a it's a complicated picture. But I will tell you that because I've always felt like faith has a place in politics, and and I would still argue that, but I'm more worried about it now than than I have ever have been in 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 my lifetime because I think at this moment 
the damage to the Christian witness, uh, particularly with the younger generation, is just really profound. And I'm I'm hearing from pastors all across the country uh, and theologians, people who have worked in parachurch organizations that tell me um, that this is a catastrophe or this is a generational disaster. And um, and I wonder sometimes whether the leaders of this white evangelical political movement, you know, the Robert Jeffress and Eric Metaxas and Ralph Reed and Franklin Graham Jr. and 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 Falwell Jr. and um, and all of of of, of those folks, uh, Jim Dobson and others. I wonder whether they are aware of that, or whether that's just information that they they just it causes maybe too much cognitive dissonance. Yeah, what's the psychology of not seeing the effect of the rhetoric? You know, I, I see it could be the the uh, the forces of of light versus the forces of darkness, a very apocalyptic view, way of looking at things. So yes. Yes, you know, some things do have to crash and burn, but the true elect will rise right. to the surface because we're speaking the truth, and it doesn't matter the effect that we're having. Truth cannot be compromised to those kinds of results. Right. I think of it as the the difference between remnant theology and, like, prosperity theology. Mm. Whenever things yeah. are not going our way and we're shrinking in our size as a church or denomination or, uh, you know, theological brand, then we're being persecuted and it means we're doing the right thing as our numbers go down. That's kind of that remnant theology. But if we're succeeding and it's blowing up, that means we're being blessed by God. It's a win-win. Yeah. You know, they said of C.S. Lewis and uh, Tolkien uh, that they never lost their sense of enchantment with the world. And uh, I, I wish that more people of the Christian faith today had that, had that feeling of enchantment with the world and had a light touch with, with the world. Hey everyone, my name is Esther Getz and I'm part of the producers group here at the Bible for Normal People. This podcast is brought to you by normal people like you and me on the Patreon platform. For as little as a buck a month, you can be part of the group that brings this podcast to regular Joes everywhere. As a thanks for your support, there are lots of videos, a discussion group, and other rewards. So check it out at patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people. Being part of the Patreon group has given me the chance to laugh at Pete, learn from Jared, and listen to how normal people are figuring out this whole faith thing just like me. I don't know what I would do without it on long car rides and during boring laundry folding. If you've gotten something from this free podcast, please do consider supporting Pete and Jared just like me. We have good news even if you're not able to support the show financially. Go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast, but remember to only say good things. We would love to particularly thank our producers group who keep Pete and Jared on their toes and help to make it better for all of us. Thanks, Rich Spini, Kevin Marshall, Caleb Needens, Chrissy Florence, Jay Burke, Eric Latassi, and Edward Glasscock. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. Now back to the podcast. Person who's uh, you 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 may know or, or may not know, but he's, he's become a friend over the years, and it was someone who who uh, was one of my favorite Christian authors, Philip Yancey. Of course, and yeah. he wrote years ago a book called "What's So Amazing About Grace." And near the beginning of that book, he said that as he was sort of doing research for it, he would talk to people, airports and and other public places, people he never knew, and he would ask them when he 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 mentioned Christianity, evangelical Christianity, what came to mind to these people. He said, for the most part, they were culture war issues, homosexuality, uh, abortion, and other issues. He said, never once did anybody mention the word grace. And that was such an important thing to, to note, um, because certainly for, for, for those of us who are, who are of the Christian faith, if that's not dead center of our theology, it's awfully close to it. And somehow that's not being translated. It's not coming out. And 
You know, one of, as you know, one of the most frequent admonitions in the Bible is fear not and be not afraid. But for so many people of the Christian faith, I think they're being animated today by fear, a real deep existential fear of if their politician loses or the Supreme Court goes the wrong way, a kind of darkness will descend on the land and all they they know and love will 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 be destroyed. And that's that true co-opting, as you said, of of faith by politics and this amalgamation. You know, um, Michael Gorman is a is a New Testament scholar, and he talks about the civil religion and the problem that is in the New Testament. How Paul speaks against it. The Book of Revelation is essentially saying, you don't mix the two. Right. You 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 can't do that because the creator won't allow it. And to think that that God is subject to any political party, left, right, center or whatever. It, it's it's it, I think it just it boggles my mind. I have to be honest with you Peter that people don't take a step back and say, "Okay, what am I doing here?" Right. I don't I I don't get it. I mean, I have my own blind spots and you know, people tell me about them all the time, but that's one I don't have, and I, I don't. I just I don't. I don't understand. Help us understand. Like, why does this? Okay, let me ask the question differently. Uh, I've heard disturbing statistics about the number of quote evangelicals who voted for President Trump and who would vote for him again, regardless of what he does. And uh, I mean, do you have those statistics? That is like eighty percent or something of evangelicals would polled would vote for him a second time at some alarmingly high number. Yeah, no, there was one that was that was within the last several months that basically so I think it was close to 50%. So there was under, okay. all, virtually under no circumstances or anything that Trump could do right. that uh, that would cause him not to not to vote for him. And I must tell you I've had um one of the things I do is I have a lot of email exchanges and conversations with a lot of pro-Trump people. Partly because it's a world, the, the Republican world, conservative world is is the one in which I come from, and some of the times I have discussions with them and 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 dialogue and even debates with them. Other times I, I I try and listen to them. I just try and get a sense of where 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 are they coming from. And in uh, recently, I had a I had an exchange with somebody whose name would be known within the within the Christian world. Uh, he'd written me, he'd sent me an article that, that he had written, which was this fine article, but the cover note was a kind of passive aggressive, which I went ahead and named. I, I said, look, there's a lot of frustration here that I, I'm sensing. In any event, in the back and forth we had, I, I did a thought experiment um, with him, which is, I, I said, let me try and understand the limiting principle uh, for you when it comes to Donald Trump. That is, what could he possibly do to keep you from voting for him? Not to vote for a liberal or a Democrat, but just to keep you from voting for him. And I positive several hypotheticals and some real ones, some of which was true of Trump. Uh, so I said, you know, ask a foreign power to intervene in, in, in a presidential election uh, and to dig up dirt on, on your opponent. Another was that you would use illegal hush money, you make illegal hush money payments to a porn star while you're cheating on your, on your third wife. Then I used the Watergate example. I said, you would tell your chief of staff to ask the CIA to intervene with the FBI to stop an investigation into a burglary and, and use uh, payments to keep the burglars quiet. I used a Clinton example. Uh, I said, you, the president has an affair with a intern in the White House, com- commits perjury. And then I threw in a couple of other ones. Uh, I said, and let's assume that we knew for a fact that he had uh, raped three women over the last five years and that he had paid for two abortions over that period of time. Would any of those things 
either either singly or together, keep you from voting for him? And he wouldn't answer the question. Hmm. Um, and it and so I've had these conversations, and I think what is going on, as best I can tell, is for a lot of these folks. They do believe this is an existential moment, that, and there is a tremendous amount of fear and concern combined with a lot of, of resentment. And they view Donald Trump as, as their protector. Protector how? I mean, in your opinion, what does he do for that significant number of evangelicals that no one else yeah. will do? Right. It's a good question. I think that they view Is that it, abortion? Is that it? I mean, or is there more to it than that? I think there's more to it than that. It's a, it's a combination of things. I think there are things that you could, I guess, refer to as both offensive and defensive. On the positive side, they would say the courts, which, which are a huge issue um, for, for a lot of evangelical Christians. And on the issue of abortion, religious liberties, they, they would say. And then there are a cluster of issues which one couldn't even remotely connect to the Bible, but, but for a variety of complicated issues issues. A lot of white evangelicals believe, you know, cutting taxes and so forth is the proper, you know, biblical stance. So that's, that would be one. I think the second thing that they would argue is he is a protector against some of the aggressions of the left. So Beto O'Rourke, not long ago, before he got out of the, the presidential race and the Democratic side, said that he would end tax-exempt status for churches, religious charities, and parachurch organizations if they didn't agree with him on same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. And that is a real threat. And, and a lot of evangelicals heard that and point to it and say, that's what they want to do to us. Mm-hmm. So that's the second thing. They, they've, they view Trump as a protector against that. Beyond that, and I think what, what to me is, a, is, is frankly worrisome and troubling, is that there's been a kind of psychology of accommodation. People who I think early on supported Trump because they felt like his agenda would be better for the moral good, the common good than, than Hillary Clinton. But they were willing to acknowledge that he was a person of deep moral uh, transgressions and, and, pro- and morally problematic. That's shifted in my, in my conversations, in my sense of things. And what's happened over the last three years uh, or so is that there's a kind of psychic delight now in how Trump practices politics, the, the, the cruelty, the brutalization, the way I've described it is they feel like he's going to bring a pistol to a cultural knife fight. Mm-hmm. And they've, there's so much grievance and so much resentment, some of which is understandable because there's no question in, in my mind that the elite culture over years has, has looked on, on certain people of the Christian faith and looked down on them. Yeah, That's built up a lot. And so when they see Trump fighting back that way, and I heard this from from people even in the 2016 campaign. The version that they said was, you know, McCain, Romney, George W. Bush were better human beings than Donald Trump, but they were too genteel. They didn't understand the nature of the struggle. And what Trump will do is is he will fight with a ferocity that we need. Because if we don't destroy them, they will destroy us. So I think all of those things and probably many others have made a combustible mix And on top of all of that, and I've told friends of mine that I think it's much more important now to understand this current political moment. It's more important to understand psychology than it is to understand politics, Mm -hmm. because I think a lot of what's happening now has to be understood through the prism of psychology. And fear, I guess, right? I mean, that's the word that keeps popping into my head. People are very afraid. And, you know, we often look to politicians to help us and and for good reason. I mean, you know, we are – 
a democratic society. So, you know, politicians, they make laws, they set policies and and that's understandable. But I guess the, the, the thing I still have trouble getting my head around is – I usually don't say this, but the rather obvious biblical teaching that you cannot put your trust in an empire, right? in any empire. I mean, you can work to make it better. I think Christians should be involved in politics and and maybe some shouldn't be, but um, you know that that's it's it's a great place to do a lot of good in a, in a in a country like this. But I don't know. I just it's it's hard for me to explain this to people, and like I have college students too who. Who are really tired of it? Yeah, you know, and like you said, they're tired of you know their faith being represented in certain ways, and they're reacting strongly to that, and and um, that's just the problem with polarization. Yeah, no, I think that's right. You know, one some grounds for hope for me is well, I, I mentioned earlier the concern about the younger generation, um, and and how this m- moment is 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 doing a tremendous amount of damage. But I, I believe that sometimes viruses create their own antibodies. And the other thing is in conversations with people um, like Gary Haugen, who's, who's the head of the International Justice Mission, which is a tr- tremendous organization doing great work about both intervening with sexual slavery around the world and also creating a criminal justice system for countries uh, all, all around the world. And, and Gary speaks to a lot of different groups. And he's told me that there is a deep thirst and longing for the younger generation for justice much more than there was, say, 15 or 20 years ago uh, among uh, younger people, the Christian faith. And I think what we're seeing right now is sort of the death throes of an old movement. And uh, you could almost bracket it from Falwell Sr. to Falwell Jr. And so that would be sort of the late 70s, early 80s. You know, and we're in it now, and it'll go on for a few more years. But I do think that there's a younger generation that is looking at this kind of moral freak show that's that's unfolding and and they're saying I don't want anything to do with this but I do care about justice and that's that's grounds for hope I think so you know we talked we talked quite a bit about more of the conservative side but from your position as someone who would be historically on the conservative side are there other are there ways that progressives uh have maybe done some damage in the rhetoric and the things that they uh, you know, toward kind of this common good approach, or what are some what are some observations that you have, kind of more from that from the other quote unquote the other side of that perspective? Yeah, no, I think both sides are implicated in this, and and you know, it's kind of fits and starts, and sometimes one movement, the, the progressive movement, I think has 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 had more transgressions when it comes to to to, to decency and than the conservative side and other times it's 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 flipped around so these things go up and down and i think partly because what we're seeing play out is it's not something that is specific to any particular ideology or political movement mm-hmm. these things are are part of human nature confirmation bias motivated reasoning and all of uh, all of those things and look there is an element on the left a kind of i don't know aggressive secularism a lot of these people who are evangelical christians haven't made up the fact that they feel that they're under siege and under attack. And if you hold a certain view about, about certain ethics on, on human sexuality or, or abortion, you can pay a, a price. And as I mentioned earlier, Beto O'Rourke um, not long ago was saying, look, if you don't agree with us on same-sex marriage, if you don't jettison a traditional view on sexual ethics, the church, you should lose your tax-exempt status. I think that's insane, and I think it's it's quite bad for, for, for comity within the country. 
Uh, and it certainly makes the job of people like me harder because when I'm trying to point out some of the, the, the problems with Donald Trump and, and the that alliance, they point to someone like O'Rourke and say, look, don't you get what, what they want to do to to, uh, to us? And there, there have been moments in my, you know, when I was in politics, I felt like when Ted Kennedy went after Robert Bork, and it goes way back to 1986, where he did a floor speech, Robert Bork's America, that I thought it was just an, a, a dishonest attack on Bork. You could vote against Bork. Uh, if, if you philosophically felt like he shouldn't be on the court. But I thought that the way that Ted Kennedy did that was was really problematic. And that actually catalyzed a ferocity in, in court nominations that hadn't been there uh, really before. The court nominations throughout history have gone up and down in terms of how, how polarized they've been. But when that happened with Bork, that, that put us in, in a different realm. When I was in the Bush administration, you know, people said uh, Bush lied uh, about weapons of mass destruction, uh, which was not true. And uh, issues in which they had differences with, it, it wasn't enough to say we disagree with you profoundly on X or Y issue. It, it had to be that you're a war criminal or you're, you're a liar and so forth. So, that, I mean, that happens in politics. Both sides, as I said, are, are susceptible um, to it. I will say that in my lifetime in politics, I don't remember it being as much antipathy as there is. I, I imagine, and I've, I'm a little young to, to really have known and, and certainly wasn't paying attention in the late 1960s. And I know that that was a very fractious time in, in America. But I think the degree of polarization and the feeling, uh, and you're able to measure this through Pew Research and, and other pretty sophisticated uh, research organizations and models, the feeling not just that the people you disagree with are wrong, but that they're evil and that they're, you're essentially enemies of the state if, you don't, if you're not uh, on my side. That is as acute as I can ever remember in my life, and it's going to take a lot to uh, to unwind this. I mean, historically, I mean, that is an apocalyptic mindset that you, you tend to go in that direction when you see everything is at stake. Yes. If the forces of evil, so you demonize people. And, and I guess, you know, it doesn't help when politicians add fire to the fuel of polarization. So, I mean, how, how do we... I mean, what would happen politically, what would have to happen to help us move out of that as a matter of electing people who are just more moderate and and who actually want to, you know, work like people like you who want to work with people on both sides and they have ideas and we should cherish them and move towards justice. I mean, that seems to be like what what is a wise Christian thing to shoot for in our country. But how how can we how can we get there? Is it really a matter of maybe letting the younger generation rise up and make their voices heard and start voting or or do you have do you have a trick up your sleeve <laughs> to help things along here please tell me that you do uh, yeah no no tricks up the sleeve i think it's it's a combination of things i think probably in the most obvious level and it's an important level you know citizens who demand more will yield politicians who offer more and you you have to vote people into office that uh, reflect a certain view of decency and civility and 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 honor they it doesn't have to be people who are moderate you know moderation i i think i understand moderation sort of in the aristotelian sense i i, I don't believe that you have to find people who say, you know, there's a liberal position and a conservative position, whatever is in the middle of that is somehow the right position. Uh Uh, Moderation is more of a, I think, of a temperament, which is sort of the antithesis of intemperance or or zealotry. 
So you need people who uh, can sort of calm the waters down and who have the the language and the and the temperament to to bind up the wounds. I mean, the most the, uh, the obvious example, and we're not going to find another one, but that was Abraham Lincoln. I mean, the power of his words when you look at look at them, or you know, at the, in the first inaugural when he said we're not enemies but friends, and then in the second inaugural after that unbelievably brutal civil war, seven hundred thousand dead in a country, twenty nine million. That's the equivalent of seven million today. I'm saying with with malice toward none, with charity toward toward all. That kind of stuff matters, and you can vote people in that that can that can represent that, and you can reward leaders who demonstrate integrity and appeal to our our better angels rather than uh, than our uh, than our worse. We, you know, people can reject propaganda and lies from politicians and and people who who spew them. But I'd say that a lot of this has to happen on the individual and the community level. Um, and I, I mean, I'd be curious about your thoughts about this. Um, I think we really have to learn, and I'm talking to myself as as well as to other people, we have to learn to listen well to one another and really to enter into where other people are coming from and try and say, uh, even if I disagree with you, I understand the perspective that you're bringing to it. You know, one of the areas that I think I've changed most significantly in the last 10 to 15 years is when I used to have debates with people I used to marshal arguments, and, and I can do that pretty well. I think like I was, you know, uh, sort of hardwired to be a lawyer and to, and, to, and to amass evidence. And then I would try and overwhelm people that, I, that disagreed with me, and that never worked. And I found this, particularly in the Trump era, when that has happened, I don't succeed in changing anybody's mind. What ends up happening is people get angry, and they dig in their heels, and the stronger... I would say that my argument is, and the weaker their argument, the more dug in they get. What's mm-hmm. changed for me, and I've, I've had several experiences of this, is I'll give you one example. And I, I write about this in a book that I wrote recently called The Death of Politics, How to Heal Our Frayed Republic After Trump. There's a person who is a, a right-wing national radio talk show host, and he and I have had something of a friendship. Uh, over the years, but he's very pro-Trump, and of course I'm I'm not. And I'd written a piece. This was in 2017, I think it was after Trump fired Comey, and it, that piece upset him. And we were having this back and forth. And you know how when you have these email exchanges, you can just tell the temperatures going up. <laughs> and like, uh, the, yeah, you, you know those kind, right? <laughs> okay. Well, by the time we got to the sort of third or fourth back and forth, he had ventured into the territory of you know, ad hominem attacks, sort of personal attacks against me. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I would have written, you know, a 10-page, single-space, point-by-point rebuttal. And I would have thought, (laughs) I'm going to leave him in a kind of, you know, I'm just going to demolish his arguments. I didn't do that, partly probably because I didn't feel like I had the time to do it. But I thought, this is, A, this is not going to be effective. B, I'm going to have to spend some amount of time repairing the relationship because I know after it's done because I know where this is going. So what I, I wrote him and I said, look, so-and-so, I'm happy to answer you, your charges if you really want me to, but I'm going to bracket them for now. Let me tell you how I think you view me and let me tell you how I view you and why I feel like we're talking past each other. And I said, for you, the prime virtue in this moment is loyalty. You believe Donald Trump's success is tied to the success of the country. You believe that he's being lacerated every day in the mainstream media. You feel like your listeners don't have to 
have you pile on as well. And you feel like I should know better, that I'm giving aid and comfort to the enemies who are trying to harm the country. And so the way you view me is somebody who is not loyal. Trump is the general in the, in the army. You can't have sergeants and corporals, you know, questioning the orders. And we got to fight. That's how you view me. And I said, for me, it's a matter of intellectual honesty. That's a higher virtue. And I said, I asked myself, if Trump did the same thing as Obama or Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton, and I would have criticized them, then I need to criticize him. And I can't, I shouldn't pull my punches or change my critique because he's, there's an R after his name as opposed to a D. And I, and I explained that. And I didn't say which one was a better virtue. I just said, I think that's how we're talking past each other. So the punchline of the story is that he wrote me back and he said, you know that, I've read this now like three times. And he said, it was like a light bulb going on. And he actually said to me, he said, you're right. I'm not interested in being objective. I'm an advocate. That's what I do. But the point was that, that we were able to connect with each other. We were able to stay in communication. And then to, to the end of the story is about a year later, I was driving down the George Washington Memorial Parkway here in, in D.C. I was on my way to work. And this was after, I think it was the Parkland shooting. And there were some mm-hmm. high school uh, kids that were leading efforts on gun control. And he was, to his credit, he spoke up to his listeners who were really, you know, jacked up about this. And he was saying, look, I completely with you on the Second Amendment, find arguments what they want to do, but don't go after these high school students. He said, I've got socks that are as old as some of these high school students, and you shouldn't do it. So I wrote him a note, and I said, so-and-so, I appreciated what you did to, to push back you know, on the show. And he wrote me back, and he said, thanks very much. And he said, you know, that voice you heard wasn't just mine. It was yours, too. Hmm. And that was an illustration to me of how we have to, in our individual lives, stay in community and listen to each other better than uh, than we do. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our time, but I think it's a great story to end on mm. um, with how we how we maybe can do better in these conversations. Pete Wainer for president. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks. So is, there, <laughs> is there, where can people who want maybe to engage with you a little more or find out more about uh, who you are, what you're about, can people find you online or have you written a book? I think you mentioned a book a little earlier. So maybe tell people how they can be in touch more uh, with you or with your ideas. Yeah, you bet. Uh, the book I wrote uh, with uh, HarperCollins, actually the same editor that Pete has to, at HarperCollins, Mickey Maudlin, and the book I wrote is called The Death of Politics, How to Heal Our Afraid Republic After um, After Trump. Then I write for the New York Times and the Atlantic. I write pieces on political ideas, politics, but also faith, actually, sometimes just explicitly on, on the issues of, of the Christian uh, Christian faith. And then um, they can go to the Ethics and Public Policy uh, website and um that's uh, they have my my email address and uh, and my Twitter address um, and um, actually I, I I love hearing from people over the transom and 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 try and answer most everything that um, that comes in my way. Awesome. Well, listen, Pete. Thanks so much for taking the time to be on our podcast. We're very thankful. I enjoyed it a lot, and I admire your work. And uh, keep uh, keep it up. It's uh, it's helping a lot of people along the journey. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. 
Okay, normal people, thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Bible for Normal People with our guest Pete Weiner. Make sure you find him on Twitter. He's not terribly hard to find or just watch TV. You'll find this guy. He's a pleasant guy to listen to and he writes great sensitive stuff in his New York Times and Atlantic pieces and also on Twitter. Just a good person to sort of gauge a good, sober and in the true sense of the word moderate way of looking at things. Yeah, and he was talking about some community ways of doing this at the grassroots level and I just wanted to mention Krista Tippett has on being this project called Civil Conversations. And there's a lot of these going around. We have one here in our area that really brings people together to talk about their different opinions on hot topics. And another one is an organization called Better Angels that's specifically oriented around political divide how we can come together and better have conversations and they train on some practices of rhetoric and how can we can talk maybe in more fruitful ways even though we may disagree at, at fundamental ways politically so i just want to mention those two civil conversations and better angels for you to check out the last thing again we would appreciate your support at patreon patreon.com front slash the bible for normal people thank you thank you see you folks I was going to make a joke about how you're not going to have any fruitful conversations until you get your throat fixed, but you just kept going. So anyway. <laughs> Sorry.